0: If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, where we have the summary of God's moral law, most commonly known to as the 10 Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we draw near to you as a people who bear your name. We come to you in prayer in the name of your son. We think of the scriptures and, and how often you are revealing yourself to us through your name. And we thank you this evening that we have just a few short minutes to, to consider this wonderful commandment this right commandment that you have given to all people. We thank you for it and we thank you for how it points us to Christ and for how, Lord, it reveals your very Son to us in the wonder of his humanity. And we pray for your blessing this evening, for your glory. Amen. Amen. It was an early Saturday morning, that time of my life I was working a third shift job and just getting off of the job, it just happened to be on that Saturday morning, the day before Easter. As I left the building, a co-worker in the providence of God was leaving at the same time. And so I asked him, So what are you doing tomorrow? He said to me as we walked along, I'm going to church. So I stopped and I asked him, why? Why are you going to church tomorrow? He said to me, because it's Easter Sunday. So I asked him another question. I said, Do you go to church on any other Sunday?" And he said, no, not usually, just Easter. So I went a little further, and I said to him as gently as I knew, and I'm remembering this years later, I said to him something like this, you know, I haven't known you very long." But what I do know is that every time I talk to you, you are continuously profane. And you often take the Lord's name in vain. So why bother going to church at all? And he, in casual conversation, said to me, well, it's Easter. It's the right thing to do. So I said and pressed him a little bit and I said, do do you know what the third commandment says? And he said, no, what does it say? So I said, well, the third commandment says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And he paused and he said something like, something very dismissive like, well, Everybody does that. Something similar to that. So I stopped him for a second and I said, but do you know what the rest of the commandment says? And he said, no, what does it say? And I said, well, the rest of the third commandment says that God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the best as I can remember, I sensed a moment of a look of slight alarm in his eyes. And he said to me, even though I think he knew the answer, he said to me, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, that means that God will hold you guilty for taking his name in vain. He paused. And in one moment, he broke the law and dismissed the law at the same time. He said something to the nature of It'll be all right. God wouldn't do anything too harsh. It'll be okay. I thought about that encounter and many others like it in light of the third commandment. And there's a reality about those types of conversations that has been firmly fixed in my mind and it's almost palpable when I think back on it and when I think of recent conversations I've had with coworkers specifically on this commandment where you can actually see what Paul talks about in Romans 1 verses 14 through 16 that in the face of the law, whether it be the law of the conscience that God has written upon the heart of the unbeliever or whether it's the very law of God written in the pages of scripture, you can see in the reaction of an individual the conscience will either accuse them or excuse them. And that's what happened at that moment. His conscience excused him. the law didn't excuse him but his conscience excused him and he thought nothing more about it and i wish that i had a better ending to that encounter and there may have been a better ending to that to that encounter in the days and weeks and years that followed the conversation but in that moment he rejected the reality of God's moral requirement upon his own life and speech and heart. The third commandment is probably the most common, flagrant, visually and audibly violated commandment in our world today. I have three or four questions here and I have it's followed by the question, right? and that's a rhetorical question so don't when i say right don't say right <laughs> so when we think about the third commandment we might say it's just black and white it's there's no gray there it's just black and white it's clear as day right it's so offensive to god when his name is taken in vain, and it's so grievous to the Christian, right? You know, a little OMG really isn't going to hurt anyone, right? But we have before us God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And our attention tonight will be zeroed in on this third commandment. And I think is as we think about this third commandment, each of those questions we would have to say is, is no, it's not right. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. It's just a verbal expression. It's not okay just to take the name of the Lord and use it just casually. It not only harms you, and it not only harms the person that you're speaking to, but it is offensive to God to break his law. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And as we consider and focus in on this command tonight, I'd like to draw both our thinking and our hearts to six truths concerning this command. The first one is this, that this third command as a part of the Ten Commandments is a part of God's moral law given by God, commanded to all people at all times. The moral law of God is given by God, commanded to all people at all times. We don't have time to do a summary of all that Uh, The Bible teaches about God's law and the different aspects of the laws of God and the moral law of God. But our confession gives a a wonderful summation of the law of God in chapter 19. I just want to read three paragraphs of this chapter that focus our attention on God's moral law. Chapter 19 and paragraph 2... Our confession states this. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. The same law that was written upon the heart of Adam and Eve continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the the fall. And that law was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. Paragraph five. The moral law does forever bind all. The moral law does forever bind all. And that statement, by the way, in light of the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, means that it is applicable to everyone here, as well as everyone who has lived and everyone who will live. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. In other words, the moral law is binding not just because of what the law says. The moral law is binding upon all people because of who gave the law, because it's God's law. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve this law but much strengthens this obligation. And in the last paragraph, paragraph seven, a very sweet passage, very sweet paragraph and statement concerning the law of God and the Christian, where our confession states that neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel but they do sweetly comply with the grace of the gospel. The spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. So this moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, is forever binding upon all, and for the believer, the law of God is something that we delight in, because our hearts have been so changed. Second, not only is the moral law of God command is it, does it command all people, but second, in the third commandment, the moral law of God centrally has to do with the name of God, that the name of God is not a simple title or a tagline of identification. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's not a command that in respect to the name of God as a simple title or a tagline of identification. Psalm 119 verse 96 teaches us that the commandment of God is exceedingly broad. And we could look at each of the Ten Commandments, but tonight in the Third Commandment, we will see that this commandment is exceedingly, is, is exceedingly broad in its scope and in its application. It reaches to our thoughts and to our words and to our actions. The name of God is not a simple title or tagline. So what does the Bible mean? What does the writer of these Ten Commandments, what does God mean when he says we are not to take his name in vain? Well, the name of God is representative of God. It represents who he is. It represents his nature. It represents his attributes. It represents his words and his works. Let me give you two examples. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. An account that we are, I'm sure most of us here this this evening are familiar with. The account in which God appeared to Moses in in the burning bush and he commissioned him to be the deliverer of Israel from Egypt. And in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, we read these words. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Moses, I am who I am. That is the name by which we get the name Jehovah, ultimately. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus ye shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Why does God name himself I am who I am? Because that name has meaning. Is God's self-revelation to us in the giving us of his name. As Calvin comments on this very verse in Exodus 3, 14, his insights are invaluable at this point. He says here that the verb where he says, I am what I am, that the verb in Hebrew is in the future tense. I will be what I will be. But it is of the same force as the present tense, except that it designates the perpetual duration of time. God is designating for himself a name that expresses the perpetual duration of time. This is very plain, Calvin goes on to say, that God attributes to himself alone divine glory because he is self-existent and therefore eternal. And this gives being an essence to every creature. He claims for himself eternity as peculiar to God alone in order that he may be honored according to his dignity. The very name that God gave to himself, I am that I am or I am who I am, is a name that describes and reveals the, the eternal nature of God. The creating nature of God, that He is the Creator. He is the only eternal one. He is the only God. He is the only one with this name. And so He has named Himself as the eternal, almighty, divine being who is worthy to be honored according to His dignity. The name of God is God's self revelation. Of who he is in relation to his creatures, and he is, and it is this name he has given to of himself alone, to express to us his very nature and his attributes. Turn to Exodus thirty-three. Exodus thirty-three. Moses has more than one encounter with God that focuses on the name of God. In Exodus 33, we read beginning in verse 18, we read these words as Moses is praying and asking God to be with the people of Israel and to forgive their sins. He says in verse 18, And he said, that would be Moses. And he said, please show me your glory. And then God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. And you shall stand on the rock So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now this encounter doesn't happen quite yet because God sends Moses back to once again write the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone, and then to bring those commandments back up into the presence of God, where God was addressing him. And we see what transpires after Moses, again, writes the Ten Commandments on two tablets in chapter 34, beginning in verse five. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. It's a lot in his name. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are, still, we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. And then from there, God makes a covenant with Israel, and he exhorts them as they go into the, to the, to the land, to the promised land, not to make a covenant with the people of the land. And we come down where God's name is mentioned one other time within this narrative in verses 13 and 14. But let's begin with verse 12 of chapter 34. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. Why? Why? Why are they to do this? Verse 14, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifices to their gods and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice and you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters, play with the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play with the harlot of their gods. You shall make, you shall make no molded gods, gods for yourselves." And even in the commissioning of the people of Israel, he says, I alone am to be worshiped, for my name is jealous. In the context of what we are reading, we find that the name of God is significant. The name of God encompasses the very nature of God, his eternal essence, his eternal being. His his separation, his holiness between the creature and the created. The name of God is expressive of his attributes. He is kind and forgiving and compassionate and slow to anger, but he, will also, he is also a God who will not, clear, will not clear the guilty. He is a God of compassion and he is a God of justice and his name reveals his nature and his attributes to us as well as his words and his works. An 18th century uh, Dutch reformer wrote a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. And when the Heidelberg Catechism begins to talk about the Third Commandment, they ask the question, what is meant by the name of God? If we are not to take the name of God in vain, certainly we need to try to answer that question, what is meant by the the name of God? And we get a glimpse of that in the two passages in which we just read. But there's a wonderful summary that I'd like to share with you. If someone were to ask how we are to understand the reference in this commandment to the name of the Lord our God, we respond that we are to understand it as having reference to two things. And this shows the very broadness of God's commands, that they are exceedingly broad. God the Lord himself, in his infinity, majesty, glory, and all his adorable virtues and perfections, by which he infinitely distinguishes distinguishes himself from all creation, we are to understand God's name as having reference to himself, with all his divine virtues and perfections, as is evidenced in the Lord's prayer. In the petition, hallowed be thy name, there, God's name refers to God himself, and all his divine majesty, glory, and perfections. So this third commandment is not only a part of the moral law of God, but it also reminds us that when we live our lives and when we use the name of God and when we talk about who God is and when we refer to his words and his works, this commandment addresses us. We are not to take his name or anything that his name represents in vain. the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now we do this in respect to men, don't we? Our names aren't just titles. I had a boss in a previous job who was extremely overbearing, very particular wanted things done exactly right, the way he wanted. And all someone would have to say is, Rob is on his way. And the behavior of the people in the room would change. It happens in our homes. Dad will be home in a few minutes. Dad just isn't a title, right? Encompassed in the name, Dad, is my dad. The authority of my home and who he is as a person and what he's like. Is he compassionate? Is he forgiving? Is he patient? Is he not? All that is encompassed in the name dad. Likewise, an infinitely greater is the name of God. This brings us to our third point about this commandment. Not only is it a moral law of God that, com- that commands all people that the name of God is not a simple tag, not a simple line of identification for him, but we're also but also in this commandment we learn what this commandment prohibits. We learn what this commandment prohibits. it's impossible to summarize what this commandment prohibits in one sermon, much less one sentence. But let me try in one sentence. This commandment prohibits the use of God's name, his virtues, his excellencies, his nature and his being, Including his works and his words, it prohibits the use of his name in vain or a light way in our words, our thoughts, our actions, expressions, and worship from the heart. It prohibits it fully at all times and in all places. And the fourth truth in this commandment is what this commandment positively commands. That it not only commands us we are not to do something. We are not to take the name of the Lord in vain. But implied in that is a positive command of what we are to do. So what does this command positive, positively command us that we are to do? It commands us to hallow. To honor to glorify, to adore, to fear, and to love the Lord our God in every way in which he has revealed himself to us, in his name, in his virtues, in his excellencies, in his essence, his nature, his works, in his words, and in all aspects of who he is and what he has done. That is what his name represents, and we are to honor and glorify that name, our God, in our words, we to honor him in our thoughts, in our worship, in our affections, fully from our heart at all times and in all places. I don't know about you, but we break this commandment often. Because none of us here can rightly adore and honor and worship the triune God in a way that his majesty deserves. In a way in which his name deserves and calls for. And yet in the breaking of this commandment, This brings us to the fifth thing that this commandment teaches, that there is a promised judgment upon those who break this commandment. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We are introduced to the scene of the court where God is the judge for God is the prosecutor and the executioner of the pronounced judgment upon the lawbreaker and God himself has promised and he has said if you have taken my name in vain you will be held guilty i will not hold them guiltless who take my name in vain i've been a witness in one trial One felony trial in my life, in one trial in my life. I was a witness to a crime, and I had to take the stand about two months after the fact, and the the prosecutor asked me the question, did so-and-so take that vehicle on, and I'll make up a date because I don't remember the date, did he take that vehicle on January the 10th? And I froze. Because I couldn't remember the day. And I ended up just giving the benefit of the doubt to the person who was asking me the question. And I said, yes, that's when it happened. And yet the whole time I wasn't certain that that was the actual day in which it happened. Well, that can pass in the human court. But you see, we all stand naked before him whom, to whom we must give an account. And the God of the scriptures who who has revealed himself to us and has revealed the gospel to us has also revealed his name to us. And he knows our thoughts, he knows our words, he knows our motives, he knows every time we have taken his name in vain. He is omnipotent and he is omniscient. And he is able to bring to account all who have broken his law. And he has promised so to do in this commandment. Well, that's the law. So finally, let me just bring just a few quick applications in closing. The first application is this, that God's, na- that God's name is jealous. He is jealous of his name. I'm jealous of my wife's name. It matters to me how you speak about my wife. I'm jealous of her name. God is jealous of his own name. It matters to him how we use his name. How we speak of him. It matters to him how we think of him. We often find ourselves in situations in our church because we're we're doctrinally founded and we have a a sound confession of faith and and we love theology and we love the great doctrines of the Christian faith. But this commandment is also a warning to us and it is also a direction to us that when we speak theologically to one another, that when we're talking to one another about the doctrines of God and the wonderful works of God, that it matters to God how we speak of him. It matters to God whether we are speaking in reverence and whether we are taking our theology as something of a curiosity or whether we understand that theology is an expression of who God is and we speak of him with reverence and in the fear of the Lord and in the love of his name. It matters, it matters to God, and it should matter to us. You know what's probably the most common, routine, and casual time in the life of a Christian, when the name of God is used? It's when we bow for prayer at our meals I've thought about this often over the years and there have been times when I began to pray a prayer of thanksgiving over a meal and I have to stop myself and and I've actually said to myself in my own thinking what are you doing? just repeating rote words memorize patterns of speech the same prayer at each meal not that there's anything wrong with the same prayer as long as it's given with the right heart but it dawns on me often especially at those times which are most common that we are to take the name of God upon our lips with honor and reverence and affection and love. We are not to take his name in vain. And it matters to God just the same whether we're in a theology conference whose central doctrine is the doctrine of God and every speaker is teaching upon the attributes of God and we are sitting there mesmerized and warmed in our heart as to the wonderful excellence of the God who has made us and who has sent his son to save us. It matters to God how we hear the name of God. It matters to God how we speak the name of God in in that type of arena. And it matters the same to him when I have my wife and my daughter at the, at the dinner table and we bow our heads and I take his name on my lips. Does this commandment go away? Is it no longer valid? No. It matters to God at all times how we use his name. But for the Christian we hear this commandment and do we not say even though we fail and do we not say even though we do not obey fully what this commandment teaches and we cannot in this life. But do we not say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 the law of God is holy and just and good. That we want the name of God to be honored. That we don't want the name of God to be taken in vain by us or by anyone else. That the name of God matters to us, and so this commandment, even though it is placed before us in in a way where it has broad application, the desire of the heart of the Christian is, yes, I am not condemned by this commandment, for Christ has taken my condemnation. This commandment no longer stands over me in judgment, because Christ has borne my judgment on the cross. I no longer stand under the weight of the guilt of this commandment, because Christ has become a curse for me, and has taken the guilt and the shame of all of my law breakings. And this commandment, it comes to me from the God who has saved me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I say to myself in my heart, I fail often, but oh, for the day. Oh, for that day. And when we see him, we will be made like him. And every thought and every word in the courts of heaven will be to the praise of his name. Every time we speak of him, we will speak with honor. Every time we talk of him in glory, we will talk of him him without any shade of sin. And we will give him the worship that his name deserves. And yet in this life, this commandment is a guide for us, a command for us, to guard and to honor the name of God. And it is not burdensome, but it is good. And finally, the law points us to Christ. This is, I'm just speaking for myself, this is mind-blowing. That the Son of God came and put himself under the law in order to keep the law. And he died as a sacrifice for our sins, not as a blemished sacrifice, but as a spotless sacrifice. He died as one who committed no sin. He died as one who fully obeyed the moral law of God at every step and at every turn and with every thought and with every word. Christ kept the third commandment. He honored his father's name, his nature, and his essence. And his will was to do the will of the one who sent him. And it's amazing to think about that all of us lawbreakers, all of us who have taken the name of the Lord in vain in some measure and in some way, probably on a daily basis, all of that guilt, Christ came and took our place and our guilt and our shame and he bore the judgment that God promised in Exodus 20 and verse 7 for all who would believe in Christ. He took our sin and he gave us his record. So that as we approach the father, as we pray feeble prayers with lisping lips, we try to utter the name of God and we know in our hearts we don't give him the honor that is truly due to him. Those prayers ascend to the father as though our mouths were honoring his name as Christ honored his name. For it's in his record that we pray. It is in his record that we live. And it is in his record that we have life and abundant life. Well, our time is gone. But let me close with this. I walked into. Uh, one of the kitchens where I work, one of the buildings where I work about two weeks ago, I walked into the kitchen and one of the cooks, uh, the cook in that particular kitchen is, uh, is a professing Christian. And evidently on this particular day, her day was not going too well. And I walked back and something happened and and she called upon the name of the Lord. I'll put it in the best possible terms. She called upon the name of the Lord, she, she just said, Jesus Christ. And I said to her, so are you profaning him, or are you praising him? And I knew what she was doing, and she knew what she was doing, but she saw that moment again where the conscience will either accuse or excuse. And she said, oh, well, I was praising him. About two days later, I walked into the same room. And again, she wasn't having a very good day. And she started again to curse, but she stopped. It wasn't because of me, I think maybe My presence in the room may have reminded her of a couple of days prior, but she stopped. Little do we know how offended God is when His name is taken in vain. And we live in a world that needs to know that there is a Savior for those who have taken his name in vain. His name is our salvation. His name is our peace. His name is our rock. His name is our fortress. His name is our comfort. His name is our refuge. His name is our life. His name is our song. His name is our existence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am who I am. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, help us this evening to meditate upon your commands, to consider how they apply to our own lives. Help us, Father, to more and more see the sweetness of your name, the glory of your name. And may we labor in our prayers and our petitions, our conversations in our thoughts and in our worship to honor your name and not to take it in vain. We ask this for the sake of Christ and for his glory. Amen.